Um, over the next probably four or five times that I teach, I want to take, take some time to look at some foundational truths for transformation. Foundational truths for transformation. Reed's going to do uh, another short series. That, so on alternate Sundays when I'm preaching, we're going to look at some of these truths. Um, now it's interesting, foundational truths. So these are truths that will truly transform and they're truths that have been transforming the, the uh, lives and the world for 2,000 years. Uh, so much of what I'm going to say is going to be by way of reminder. I've become more and more convinced as I've gotten older, and I'm, I am actually older. I'm 44 years old now. Um, I've become more and more convinced that what we need as Christians is not new novel things to transform us, but we need to be reminded of the foundational truths, and they need to go deeper into us. It was Martin Luther that said, uh, he said, I... I pound the gospel into my people's heads continually. It's like he, he, he pounds it into their heads so that it makes its way down to the heart. What we need is for the ancient truths to go deeper. <clears throat> There's a verse in Jeremiah where the Lord is speaking through the prophet and, and the Lord pleaded for the leaders of Jerusalem to walk on the ancient paths. And there's, then there's this devastating response from the leaders of Jerusalem where they say, we will not do so. This love for new things, novel things, is as old as dirt. Charles Spurgeon, in a book I'm reading, just a book of his prayers and sermons about prayer, he said, we want a revival of old-fashioned doctrine. In our day, we like new stuff, but I agree with him. That's, this is what we want, a revival of old-fashioned doctrine, the kind that truly transforms. Of course, transformation is a hot topic as well, a hot idea, and the impulse, I think, of every individual to change or to be transformed, whether it's physically or intellectually or gaining new skill sets and so forth, makes sense. Since we are all image bearers of God, we understand that we are fundamentally flawed and we want to change. I remember back in 2015, 2016, who remembers when Bruce Jenner was doing his thing in public where he was, you know, transitioning, uh, supposedly. Obviously, we understand no one transitions from being a man to a woman, but I'm going to use that language. But he did this in a very public way, where he began taking hormone tr treatment therapy and having surgery and dressing like a woman and so forth. And I remembered, along with being saddened for him and somewhat outraged, I also felt like I had an epiphany during that time. I, I thought to myself, this is a man who wants to become a new person. He doesn't like himself. And I thought, the new birth. He needs the new birth. For whoever is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Even as Christians, if we're not careful, we can fall into the kind of thinking that or the, that the goal of transformation is to feel better about ourselves. 
positive self-esteem, to have a sense of, even to have a sense of glory in ourselves or reason to boast in ourselves or about ourselves. There have been, and of course there still are now, preachers, many of them with very large followings, peddling this kind of message. There was a well-known preacher. I had never heard of him until Donald Trump was president, actually, but apparently he was Donald Trump's president, uh, not president, he was Donald Trump's pastor, um, but I had heard of his book. I had heard of the message of his book. His name was Norman Pen- Vincent Peale. Ever heard of that name before? Okay. I had never heard of him. But I bet you, if you have never heard of him, I bet you've heard of his book. The book is called The Power of Positive Thinking. Now, no sane Christian would say, no, 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 positive thinking is bad. No, we would all say positive thinking is good, but we just would say there's a very limited power that positive thinking has to actually change us. He later wrote a book entitled Positive Imaging, The Powerful Way to Change Your Life. And people are drawn to a message like this, right? Because we naturally want to feel and think good thoughts about ourselves. We naturally want to glory in ourselves. Perhaps the most crass example of this goal of transformation comes from another American preacher who I have heard of, who I had heard of for a long time. His name is Robert Schuller. Ever heard that name before? Robert Schuller, okay. And he came up with this phrase. I think he wrote a book by the same with the same phraseology, but he believed we needed a new reformation. So the reformation of the 1500s, he said, we need a new one, a reformation of positive self-esteem. Of course, the most well-known preacher today whose message is in the same vein is a man named Joel Osteen. Positive thinking, possibility thinking, positive imaging, your best life now, become a better you. It's all self-glory. Well, some of you might be thinking that this is so far from the path that we would ever go down, and I would say amen to that. But I would suggest that this sort of thinking in more subtle ways has crept into much of the church. Far from transforming someone to be more like Christ, it turns them in on themselves and they become more self-focused, more narcissistic. This message, of course, always finds a large audience because this is the way we're naturally bent. And I mean according to our sinful human nature. We're bent in on ourselves. We're turned in on ourselves anyways. Well, our text this morning is the medicine we need to cure us from this sickness. It is, from this sort of thinking. And the message from this text is truly transformative because it frees us from self-focus. It truly transforms us from the inside out. It pulls us out of ourselves, takes our eyes off of us, and puts them on Jesus Christ, which is what we need. So here's the layout of this passage, okay? Three main points. It's pretty easy to see in the passage. One, now don't be offended by this, okay? You and I, are unimpressive. Okay? Number two, Jesus Christ is supremely impressive. Number three, boast 
in Christ, not yourself. Okay? You and I are not impressive. Christ is supremely impressive, so let's boast in him, not us. Let's see how Paul impacts this for us. First, we are unimpressive. Now, the goal today is not for you to go home feeling really bad about yourself. That's not the goal at all. Quite frankly, the goal is that you leave today not even thinking about yourself. Look at verses 26 to 29. Here's what Paul says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. Now, Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. Corinth was an impressive city deeply steeped, neck deep in Hellenistic culture or Greek culture. Okay, wisdom was a huge deal. Human philosophy, a big deal. The love of wisdom was manifest there in a huge way. Some, uh, some theologians or commentators believe there, there may have been upwards of 50 schools of philosophical thought in operation in Corinth at this time. Okay, it's a big deal. And what Paul wants them to know He wants to press home upon them the fact that these Christians in Corinth did not become followers of Christ because of their superior wisdom or because of their superior strength or because of their noble bloodline. Verse 26 says, Consider your calling. Now he's talking about the calling of the Holy Spirit when he calls us to believe in Christ. He's saying, when the Holy Spirit came and called you and gave you the gift of faith to believe in Christ, who were you? You were unimpressive, right? There was nothing special about you. It wasn't because you were wise and figured out the riddle of the gospel, whereas your neighbor just wasn't quite as wise as you. It wasn't because you were strong and could wrench yourself free from the enslaving power of sin and your neighbor just wasn't quite as strong as you, didn't have the willpower you had. It had nothing to do with that. And it wasn't because you you were of noble stock and your grandmother or grandfather made a deal with God. It had nothing to do with any of that. And then Paul states, restates what he just said, except he does so positively. And notice the words repeated three times. God chose. God chose. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And God does this. God chooses nobodies. God saves nobodies. God saves unimpressive people to upend the world. This is totally different than the way that the world operates. It goes completely against the world's ways. Now, 
some here might rightly say, wait a second, God really does save smart people. And he does. He really does save successful people, even strong people, strong people with really, really solid skill sets. And he does. God really does save individuals from prominent families. And that's true. But he saves such people in a way that smart people understand it has nothing to do with their intellect. It has nothing to do with it. And strong people that they know it has nothing to do with their strength and rich people that they know it has nothing to do with their wealth. Listen to what Paul says a couple chapters later to the same church in Corinth. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, what does he say, do you know? Let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul labors here to make the point that God saves people that are unimpressive. And those who think they are impressive in this world need to be brought low before God. Paul's not, Paul is not concerned about our self-esteem. But it does beg the question, why does Paul say this? Or why does, quite, well, maybe we should go deeper. Why does God say this? This is God's message. Why does God say, say this? Or why does God operate this way? Verse 29 tells us God's design. So that, those two words, purpose, so that no human being, or literally no flesh, may boast in God's presence. There shall be no self-exaltation, no self-boasting before God's throne. Okay, this is a big deal to God, right? He saves and transforms in a way that we do not look in the mirror and say, way to go, good job, you did it. Remember the story of, of, of uh, Gideon? I love the story of Gideon. I read that recently and just so invigorating. I mean, just to, to, to think about what God did through this man named Gideon. Gideon was an unimpressive person. The Israelites were under the thumb of the Midianites, a, a brutal nation who was oppressing them. And an angel of the Lord came to Gideon and said, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And Gideon said, who am I? Well, anyways, let's fast forward. God gathers Gideon and a whole bunch of men who are going to fight against the Midianites. 32,000 men with Gideon. And God says to Gideon, that's way too many. You need less. And so 22,000 leave. 10,000 left. God still says, too many. So it's whittled down to 300. And God wins a great victory. Judges chapter 7 verse 2 tells us why God did this, what his motivation was. And here's what it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My hand has saved me. Brothers and sisters, we are unimpressive in ourselves. And 
That's good news. It's good news, okay? It's really good news because Christ is supremely impressive. Verse 30, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now this passage is like truly a pregnant verse, okay? It's like pregnant with quadruplets. I mean, it's just, it is so full of life. If you get this verse, I think it's about 15 years ago. Seriously, we, had, we were having a prayer, prayer group in our home and I read this verse and it was like it was the first time I read it. I was like, oh my goodness. This is life-changing. Jesus is the source and fountainhead of every blessing that comes to us. Every single blessing that comes to us now and in the future all come, as Christians, all come to us through Jesus Christ. About about every three or so months, I make a trek up to Minnesota. And you're going to laugh when I tell you what what it's for. It's to fill up a whole bunch of five-gallon jugs with spring water. Okay? There's a spring you can pull right up next to it. It's got this nice faucet, um, sink, and all of that. And I fill fill, fill these jugs up with spring water for my beautiful wife. Okay? It is mostly for her. I probably wouldn't do it just for me. Um, but what's amazing is this is an aquifer underground and the water shoots up out of the spring and flows out of this fountain without end. There have been times when I've gone there, more in the winter time, after some snow, I suppose, I don't know, and it is coming out so fast. And other times it's not quite as fast, but this water is gushing out without end. God's grace is flowing toward us, gushing over us through Jesus Christ now and without end. Every blessing comes through Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in and through Christ. Every blessing those that are bestowed on us now and those that are reserved for later, they all come to us through Christ. And those two words, in Christ, those are some of Paul's, that's some of his favorite language in all of his letters. Because like 150 times he uses the, the words in Christ or in him. It speaks of our union with Jesus Christ. That we are now united to Christ. We are in Christ. Whereas before, we used to be in Adam. When we were in Adam, we received everything that Adam could could give us, which is sin, condemnation, and death. Now that we are in Christ, we receive everything that Christ can give us, which is life and forgiveness and blessing forever and ever. We've been united to Christ, and notice why or how we've been united to Christ, it is because of God that you are in Christ. Because of God. If you believe in Christ, if you are united to Christ by faith, listen, behind all of it is God. He drew you. He gave you the gift of faith. You believed, united to Christ. 
Now, some here today, might, you may have walked in here and you are unsure if you are in Christ. You're not sure if you are a believer, a Christian through faith in Jesus Christ, and I have been praying that today you would become one that you would trust in Jesus and be united to him because the effects of this union with Christ are without number, but we are given four here that are stupendous. The effects of being united to Christ is that Jesus Christ has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness from God, sanctification from God, and redemption from God. So Christ is our wisdom. The message of Jesus Christ, of course, was foolish It was idiotic sounding. It was a message that the the intellectual elite in Greek culture dismissed as moronic. In fact, the the word foolish is the word moronos in Greek. We know what what word we get from that, right? Moronic. It's for morons. It's for foolish people. The gospel seems like such a foolish, weak message, and it's not that dissimilar today. A crucified Savior sounds pathetic. And yet, Jesus Christ is true wisdom. The message of the gospel is the wisdom of God. Christ crucified is foolishness to Greeks, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 is called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the one who reveals God's divine truth. In Hebrews chapter 1, he is is the one who is the ultimate and final message from God. Whereas God in times past spoke through prophets in different times, in different ways, in these last days, the writer of Hebrews says he has spoken to us in his Son. He is God's final message. If you want to know true wisdom, get to know Jesus Christ and relate everything back to him. Colossians 2, 2, and 3 says that all the treasures of wisdom and and knowledge are found in Christ. Isn't that amazing? We're not going to go down this bunny trail today, but think about the effect that has on even on education, educating kids. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And specifically, when it comes to thwarting the false wisdom of the world, it's Christ crucified, the foolish to the worldly wise. It's the true wisdom of God. Remember back, it wasn't that long ago when we were going through 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I believe, where Paul was reminding Timothy how the scriptures were able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ because the scriptures point us to Christ. So it makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If you have received Jesus Christ and him crucified as a gift, you have received God's boundless wisdom If you want to grow in wisdom, which I hope we all do, then grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's accomplished on your behalf. Seek to know and understand his words and his teachings because Jesus Christ has become to us wisdom from God. 
Then Paul says Christ is also our righteousness. This is another effect of being united to Jesus. Christ is our righteousness. Now, no doubt, I believe, this is referring to the free gift of God's righteousness that comes to us as a gift when we believe in Jesus. Okay, we're all born with a big problem, okay? God is good and righteous, and we in ourselves are not. And because of that, we are under God's righteous condemnation because of our sin. God is good and righteous. We are sinful. Because of that, by nature, we are under God's righteous condemnation. But the good news is, now we need to hear this. This is glorious. The good news is, whether you're a Christian or not, the good news is that God justifies or gives the gift of righteousness to ungodly people who believe in Jesus Christ. The reformer Martin Luther believed this was the doctrine on which the church would stand or fall. It is massively important. And here's what it means. The moment a sinner believes in Jesus Christ, there's two things that happen. Well, there's more than two things, but as it relates to our sin, there's two things that happen. Our, the debt of our sin is removed and the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our bank account. The massive debt is removed, right? We're taken out of the red. That's removed and we're put infinitely in the black because the very righteousness of Christ is credited to us so we can live before God just as if we've never sinned just as if we have perfectly and always obeyed. And in a moment, we go from being under the condemnation of God because of our sin to being fully and perfectly accepted by God because of Christ's righteousness, because of him. At the cross, there was this great exchange that took place. God made Jesus Christ to be sin even though he never sinned. He took ours on himself. It was, our sin was counted as his. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God even though in ourselves we are not righteous. There is... This, this is, it really is a scandalous message. And one thing that Martin Luther, he, had, he came up with this phrase, and, and it goes like this, that at the same time, we are both righteous and sinful. In Christ, we are righteous. His righteousness clothes us, and yet in ourselves. How many know that when someone becomes a Christian, their sins are fully forgiven, but there's still need for growth? Right, do we know that? We understand that, right? And after you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years and 30 years and 50 years, and if you live long enough, 80 years, there's still need for growth. We still, we still are growing in Christ. We're still being transformed. So at the same time, at the very moment we believe in Christ, we are perfectly righteous in Christ. His righteousness clothing us like a pure white robe.
Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, a prophecy of speaking of Christ hundreds of years before Jesus came, said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell secure. And this is the name by which he will be called. And it's this, the Lord is our righteousness. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. I want to read just a short, test, or a short account of um, how this transformed one man's life that many of you probably have heard of. His name is John Bunyan. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, because this can change your life. This can transform your life. I hope that if you have not, that you have a similar experience as his. Here's what he said. He said, one day as I was passing into the field, some, with some dashes on my conscience, fearing yet that all was not right. In other words, he wasn't sure he was right with God. He had some dashes on his conscience. He wasn't sure that if he stood before God, he would be accepted. And he said, all of a sudden, this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. I thought I saw with my eyes, the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There was my righteousness. Wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say that I lacked his righteousness. For that was ever before him. Moreover, I saw that it was not my good frame of heart, we need to hear this, it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better or my poor frame of heart that made it worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I pray that we would know this. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Then Paul says Christ is our sanctification, whereas righteousness refers to the impeccable once-for-all righteousness of Christ credited to us, put in our bank account as it were. Sanctification refers to the ongoing progressive growth in righteous living, in holy conduct. Christ is our righteousness. It's not that the free gift of righteousness comes to us as a gift, and then sanctification comes mainly through our industrious and hard work. Christ himself is our righteousness. The Spirit of Christ, who is the Spirit of holiness, indwells each blood-bought Christian, producing his gracious fruit in us. Of course, the, ongoing, the point of this ongoing sanctification is that we become more and more like Jesus in our actual living, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus from glory to glory. Sanctification, I think it's a, it's a, it's a teaching that um, is not talked about enough. It's something that must be a part of the life of a Christian to prove that he or she is truly born again. Not perfection, but a radical change in direction. 
For without a changed life on the ground, where the rubber meets the road, there can be no assurance that we are saved at all. Hebrews chapter 12 says, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So it matters. We need to be sanctified. Of course, this doesn't come all at once. It takes a lifetime but those who truly receive the gift of righteousness we talked about before will show the effects of righteousness and how they live. Jesus is not a partial savior. He doesn't save from the consequences of sin while leaving us under the domination of sin. Jesus is a sufficient, perfect full Savior. He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And so this morning, draw near to God through Christ. He saves to the uttermost. But the point that Paul is making here is that Jesus Christ himself is our sanctification. He works it into us by his spirit and his truth. And as we fix our eyes on him, we can be confident that he most certainly will. Wednesday night at prayer, Alyssa shared this verse from Philippians 1, and I thought of it in relation to this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christ is our sanctification. I when, you think, when we think about sanctification, often it's, it's like, well, we need to stop doing this and start doing this, and that's certainly a part of it, right? Put off the old man, renew your mind, put on the new man. But I think we need to start from the place that God will be faithful to sanctify his people, that Christ himself is our sanctification. Finally, Paul says Christ is also our redemption, The word redemption is is sometimes used to refer to all the benefits we receive from Jesus. In the context of this passage, I think it, and because it comes on the heels of Christ being our righteousness and sanctification, I, I, I think it refers to the final deliverance that we receive from Christ from all sin and evil. That final deliverance, okay? Christ is our righteousness. In the past, we believed in Jesus. Once for all, we are righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's our sanctification. This is an ongoing thing. And then we look forward to the future when Christ is our redemption and he delivers us from sin and evil forever. It's that day when the work of Jesus Christ will be consummated in the perfect salvation of his people, body, soul, and spirit. In fact, there's a verse in Romans chapter eight that talks about this, this future hope and it speaks about the redemption of our bodies. I think that's what this is talking about. This future redemption where Jesus comes and the dead in Christ will be raised with resurrection bodies. As I've gotten older, I value, I love that, t- that, that truth more and more. Praise his name. So what's the goal of all of this? What is God's design in pointing us away from ourselves and pointing us to Jesus Christ? Verse 31 makes it so clear. So that Christ has become to us 
wisdom from God and and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Boast in Christ. That is the point that we recognize in ourselves we're unimpressive. Christ, oh my goodness, he is supremely impressive. Get your eyes off yourself. Get them on Jesus and boast in him. This is God's design. This is the purpose of it all. No boasting about self. It's not about self-esteem. It's not about feeling good about yourself. Get your eyes off of yourself. No glorying there. There's nothing there to glory in. And it steals glory from the only one who's worthy of it. There's only one person who deserves to have the spotlight put on him, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. When worship becomes a show, things have gotten off. When preaching becomes a platform for a preacher to strut around on stage and get people to think about how amazing he is, things have gotten seriously off. When Christians think that the endeavor of life is to feel good about themselves and glory in themselves, things have gotten off. But it's more than just getting off. It is actually a stench in God's nostrils. We are to glory in Christ. When we come face to face with real bona fide glory in the face of Jesus Christ, the last thing, think about this, the last thing you think about is yourself. I've never been there, but I want to go there. But I'm going to use an example because I've heard it's amazing. Okay? Nobody stands on the south rim of the Grand Canyon looking over that beauty and then is unimpressed and decides to turn around and dig their own hole to feel good about themselves. That would be the height of insanity. You stand on the south rim boasting in its glory and probably completely unaware of yourself. And of course, that's just that's merely created glory. What about the God who made it? So let me ask you a question. Are you gonna are you gonna boast? Are you do you wanna boast? Listen, no, don't say yes or no yet, okay? In one sense, we all want to. It's not a question of whether or not you will boast, it's what you will boast in. Don't boast in yourself. Don't it's, there's no life found there. Boast in Christ. He is supremely impressive. He is supremely glorious. Let's boast in Jesus Christ and all that he's done on our behalf, all that he's doing now, all that he promises to do in the future. Shout it from the rooftops. Sing at the top of your lungs. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a disgusting crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. Let's glory in Christ. He died for me. He died for me with joy. Huge joy I'll sing. 
the praises of my dear Redeemer for endless days shall ring. Boast in Jesus Christ. Glory in the Lord. Exult with exuberant joy in Him. He's your wisdom. He's your righteousness. He's your sanctification. He's your redemption. Boast in Him because from beginning to end, Christ is everything. Now Paul here quotes an Old Testament passage. He says, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then, so that passage is out of Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is the truth that transforms. Not not just the truth. This is a truth that transforms. Eyes off of self, eyes onto Christ. It's the I might be stealing this from somebody because I've heard this somewhere else, but I don't know who. So I'm st- I am stealing it from someone, but I don't know who. Uh, the glorious gift of self-forgetfulness. Because we're so enamored with, fixed on Christ. The glorious gift of forgetting about yourself and simply rejo- rejoicing in, boasting in, glorifying in Jesus Christ. So don't turn inward, turn outward. Look at Jesus Christ, look at the cross, look at the one who's your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. Think about how this would change your life day to day. If you are in Christ, you know where to go to get wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. And God will give it. We have, a, we, have, we have the book that points us to Christ. We have the, we have the book that, it, that tells us the teachings of Christ. Jesus Christ is the, the fountain of all wisdom and knowledge. We know where to go to get wisdom. Think about how this would change your vertical relationship with God on a daily basis. When you wake up in the morning, and I, I know that, listen, we're not to live by our feelings. But when we wake up in the morning, I don't know if there's anybody else here, but you just, you feel kind of spiritually blah. And you feel like you kind of got to like do something to get God to approve of you. No. No. If you are in Christ, he is your righteousness. He wasn't when you went to bed the night before. He was through all of your dreams through the night, whether they were good or bad, whatever, or you don't remember them. And, he, and he's your righteousness when you wake up. Think about this. You most certainly are to pursue sanctification. And Christ is committed to seeing you sanctified. And finally, the hope that evil and suffering and sin will be vanquished forever because Jesus is your final redemption. He's everything joyfully 
boast in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for thank you that you put us in Christ. I thank you that you came looking for us when we were rebelling against you and you united us to your son Jesus, forgave our sins, gave us righteousness, sanctification, redemption, wisdom, all in Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to turn away from ourselves. We live in, in, in a world where we are so infatuated with ourselves. I mean, just culturally, it's all about finding yourself and discovering yourself and this and that. And what we desperately need is to, well, for some, to find Jesus, to discover him, to have their eyes open to him. For many of us here, maybe, maybe all of us here, it is to have a sight of Christ, a fresh sight of the glory of Jesus Christ, eyes open to see him. Father, I pray, open the eyes of our understanding today.